Please speak with your healthcare team before making any changes to your diabetes management. This podcast provides general information and discussions about health and related subjects. This information and other content provided in this podcast or in any linked materials are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice, nor is the information a substitute for professional medical expertise or treatment. If you or any other person has a medical concern, you should consult your healthcare provider or seek other professional medical treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something that you have heard in this podcast or read in any linked materials. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast and website have no relation to those of any academic hospital, healthcare practice, or other institution. Please consult the Omnipod 5 Automated Insulin Delivery System User Guide for more information. The guest speaker for this episode is an employee of Insulate. Hi, I'm Nancy Hanna. And I'm Dina Gottesman. Welcome back to Beyond the Bolus. We have a very exciting two-part episode where we'll be debunking common misconceptions about the Omnipod 5 automated insulin delivery system. This is part one, where we'll be discussing initiation and adjustable settings. But we're turning this into a fun game we're calling Fact or Fake News. And I will be going through some of the misconceptions we commonly come across from providers and patients. If this statement is fact, you'll hear this. But if this statement is fake news, you'll hear this. I'm excited. This is actually really, really important because how many times, Dina, do you get questions from providers where you think, oh, I thought I, I thought I reviewed this or I thought I mentioned this or I thought you should know this. We are super excited to be joined by Leslie Barrett today. She is the Senior Manager of Clinical and Professional Education at Insulet. She is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist. Leslie, tell us about your connection to the Omnipod 5 system. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Dina. I am so thrilled to be here today. This is the first podcast I've ever been a part of, so it's extra thrilling. And thanks for having me on as your guest. So I've been involved in many different aspects of Omnipod 5 for the last several years from innovation through the commercialization of the product. My involvement early on was supporting the development of the product requirements from a clinical perspective, kind of providing clinical guidance as those were drafted. I helped with the user experience design and and research from a clinical perspective as well, helping to develop training for some of our users who were involved in user experience and the design of the product from a user interface perspective. I helped to support human factors validation for the Omnipod 5 system the clinical site training and support throughout our Pivotal trial, and then developing our medical education materials for the commercial product. You know the system inside out. Yeah, yeah. You could say I'm very passionate. So I'm extra, extra excited to be here with you guys today to talk about it. The fact that you are an expert is obviously why you are here today. So can you give us just a general brief overview of Omnipod 5? Yeah, that's great. It's good to kind of set the stage and make sure everyone listening is is on the same page and kind of understands the foundations of the system. So the Omnipod 5 is a tubeless automated insulin delivery system. It works in conjunction with the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor, CGM, and it's cleared for ages two and above for those living with type 1 diabetes. We received clearance for our um, our little preschool population, uh, two to 5.9 
two to six year olds over the summer. So we're, we're really excited about that. And the pod is really similar to the pod that everyone listening in knows and loves already. It can be worn almost anywhere that users would give an injection of insulin. So the abdomen, back of the arms, lower back, upper buttocks, the legs, it's still waterproof up to 25 feet for 60 minutes, except the pod is a heck of a lot smarter now. It now has smart adjust technology, which is the name of our algorithm embedded or housed within the pod. And every five minutes, the pod is going to receive CGM data from the Dexcom. And it uses that information to make a dosing decision and predict where glucose is headed. 60 minutes into the future to know if it should automatically increase or decrease or pause insulin delivery. And it does that based on the user's customized target glucose setting, which is really neat. It's a really novel feature. We can kind of individualize that target glucose anywhere from 110 to 150 milligrams per deciliter. So all of this is done entirely on body, which is really remarkable, right? It's automating insulin delivery entirely on body. And then the user would either use the controller provided by Inslet or a compatible personal smartphone with the Omnipod 5 app downloaded to it to perform pod changes every three days or send bolus insulin commands to the pod or you know use other features like that. Then they would interact with the Dexcom app on their smartphone to do anything, I always say, administrative with the Dexcom. So use the Dexcom app for anything Dexcom, use the Omnipod 5 app for anything Omnipod 5 related. So I want to make sure that we call this out, Leslie, because I can't tell you how many times myself or maybe even Dina and definitely a lot of my colleagues who are training patients on the Omnipod 5 system run into a problem. We get to the training and the patient doesn't either have a cell phone or they don't have the Dexcom app running on their cell phone. I just want to make sure everybody knows in order to use the Omnipod 5 system, a user must have their Dexcom app active and not be using the Dexcom receiver. It needs to be powered off, right? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's not going to connect with the Omnipod 5 system. So I'm really glad that you brought that up as a distinction. It's so important, especially for CDEs or CDCESs who are going to be doing that training. So yeah, it's a really important distinction. It has to be the Dexcom app on a smartphone. You can't use the receiver. I think that's a really great point to mention and call out. Receiver must be off, power down, completely yes. power down. Perfect. Yes. And if they don't have a cell phone before they get on the Omnipod 5 system would be a good time to get a cell phone, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's becoming less of an issue because a lot of our younger ones, our preschoolers who maybe wouldn't have had a cell phone before want to use the Dexcom app for the share and follow feature anyway, so that their caregivers, their parent or guardian can get those glucose readings every five minutes in real time when they're not with that little one at preschool. So fortunately, I think it's becoming less of an issue, but absolutely. Yeah, they, they want to make sure they're using the Dexcom app on a, on a compatible smartphone. Excellent. So thanks for clearing that up. We hope everybody knows that. Let's get into uh, talking about initiation of the system. All right. So fact or fake news, users need to start in manual mode. That is fake news. So starting <laughs> starting the system in manual mode is insignificant. It's, it's totally unnecessary. I think 
kind of talking about the foundation of how Omnipod 5 initializes helps people to understand why that's unnecessary. And what it does is the Omnipod 5 system is going to track the user's insulin delivery, their total daily insulin or TDI, right when the user's starting the system, regardless of what mode they're starting in. So whether they're starting in manual mode or automated mode, the system is always working to track their TDI. So I think that's important to, to mention that starting in manual mode really doesn't provide clinical benefit and that algorithm is always kind of running and working in the background. Perfect. So I'm just going to repeat that because I know sometimes people miss things until they hear it in a different voice like mine. So just to go over what you said, the algorithm is always working in the background. The system is based off of total daily insulin and that's it. So it doesn't really benefit somebody to start in manual mode. Yeah, that's exactly right, Nancy. So Essentially, when the user starts the system, the algorithm is going to estimate their total daily insulin or their TDI based on the basal program that is active, that the user enters in at first time setup, right? Going through training, they're going to enter in their basal rates and their settings, and it estimates their TDI because they don't have, it doesn't have any insulin delivery history really on the user yet, right? So it's using that active basal program as an estimate of their TDI for that first pod when the system is initialized and that user starting for the first time. And this allows the algorithm to kind of establish an estimate for what we call an adaptive basal rate. And our adaptive basal rate is going to be one of the inputs to our algorithm, the smart adjust technology. And the adaptive basal rate serves as kind of a baseline or a starting point from which the system is then going to increase or, or decrease automated insulin delivery. And then because it's TDI-based, meal boluses, correction boluses, and that AID, that automated insulin delivery, will tell our system whether the user's insulin needs are actually higher or lower. And that adaptive basal rate will then continue to update with each pod change. And so back to the original question, Nancy, that you posed about manual mode and starting in manual mode and any clinical benefit, even in manual mode, the system's kind of tracking that insulin delivery and determining TDI. So there's, there's really not that benefit of starting. So I'm actually going to ask a question that Dina and I kind of have battled. Uh, both of us live in the northeastern part of the United States. So it's very common in this part of the United States that our providers want patients to start with a saline start. I'm pulling out my second microphone. I'm hoping that the team can do like an echo effect. This does nothing. <laughs> Let's talk about saline, saline starts. Start, start, start. So give me a little bit of information. You know, I, I know from working here at Insulet that we don't recommend saline starts. Why is that, Leslie? That is such a great question. Um, you know, I used to work in the field too, and I remember saline starts were pretty prevalent, particularly in pediatric offices. And the purpose of them was to give the patient kind of a, a feel or flavor of what it's like to interact with the device, right? Like, what buttons do I push and when and how and where do I go? And all of that can be achieved through the Omnipod 5 simulator, an app that's available on, on Google Play or wherever you, you download your apps on the Apple Store as well. But in addition to that, not only can they kind of get that simulation in terms of the user interface through our app that they can download and kind of peruse at their leisure, there's no clinical benefit to start starting the system with a saline start because remember that algorithm is always working, right? So even if if they're starting with saline, they're tracking, it's tracking the user's total daily insulin. It's determining how much it's getting through basal insulin delivery, through bolus. And with saline, users are really 
kind of just practicing and playing around and what they're delivering is not always accurate. So it could actually be a bit detrimental to start with saline. Um, I was hoping you would say that because yeah. I think that's something that we don't maybe mention enough is that, you know, when someone's taking long acting insulin and rapid acting through injections and running saline through a very smart, intelligent pod that's tracking everything, no matter what mode they're in, we could end up with parents who are hypervigilant. I'm thinking pediatrics and or even just an adult who's really going to show that clinic that they're practicing and they're over bolusing, like they're doing so many boluses, but they're not actually, it's not real information because they're not actually eating and they're not really injecting. And, and then what, right? Then we end up with data that's inaccurate. Yeah. And we, we could achieve the goal of getting practice with the system just through the simulator and Inslet provides demo pods so that the user can get a feel of what it's like to wear for three days. And so we can achieve all of those common goals without actually doing the saline start. What I'd recommend is just starting the system right in automated mode and getting a feel for the system using the simulator and using a, a pod demo, which is a really fun way to kind of see where you might want to wear the pod too. Awesome. Okay. I've talked too much. Dina, jump no, in. <laughs> actually, I was just going to say this kind of segues into, into my next question. Obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about starting in automated mode. I think there's still some confusion around new users and, and waiting and the waiting time required. This is my fact or fake news question. The Omnipod 5 system requires a 48-hour warm-up period before entering automated mode. We're getting that a lot, that people have heard that there is a, a waiting time, even though you're not starting in manual mode, there's still a waiting time for the system to really work fact or fake news? <laughs> fake news. <Dana>. Right. <laughs> the user can enter automated mode right away with that first pod. And the design of the requirements was quite intentional to make that switch into automated mode right away really quite simple for the user. So the requirements for automated mode entry right away are just an active pod and a saved Dexcom transmitter serial number. And both of those requirements are fulfilled with prompts right away after the user starts the system for the first time and enters their settings. They'll activate a pod right away and then they'll connect their CGM just by entering in that Dexcom transmitter serial number. And right away they can switch to automated mode. So there's no warm up period in that case or they don't have to wait 48 hours. They can kind of reap those benefits of automated insulin delivery right away with the Omnipod 5 system. Really simple entry into automated mode right away. Well, that's a relief. I mean, I think making sure that that's understood by all users, both patients and providers. So with that, what are the expectations that users should have prior to starting Omnipod 5, given that they're going to start in automated mode straight away, that there is no sort of a warm-up period? What What is the expectation that, that we want? Have we found a cure? <laughs> I wish I could set that expectation. That is um, that is not the expectation, but I do love the topic of expectation setting with automated insulin delivery systems. The pod has some unique nuances with that first wear. So I think expectation setting for the first pod wear is a, a really kind of fun and great topic to discuss. So we talked about the foundations of how the system is initialized after first time setup in terms of estimating the TDI based on the user's active basal program. But what I think is important to mention here too, as we talk about expectations, is that 
The system requires 48 hours of wear and a subsequent pod change before that adaptive basal rate is actually based on true insulin delivery history, as opposed to the adaptive basal rate being an estimate based on the active basal program with that first pod. So I could see how there could be confusion that there's a warm-up. Let me reiterate, there's no warm-up period, but it is now adapting based on true insulin delivery after that 48 hours of wear and a pod change. So for that first 48 hours of wear before that pod change or that first pod wear, there's going to be some limits or kind of constraints to how much automated insulin delivery the system will allow for that user. So it delivers insulin a little bit more conservatively for that first pod. Um, It has those restraints in place because it doesn't know the user's insulin delivery needs. And then with that second pod, after that 48 hours of wear and the pod change, then it's going to kind of loosen those constraints because it's built insulin delivery history on that user at that point. So I think it's good going back to expectation setting that, you know, if blood sugars run higher a little bit more for that first pod wear, that's, that's normal and that can be expected, particularly just within those first few days is there's an adjustment period that's needed. And I always like to say the adjustment period is kind of needed on both ends, the ends of the user as they adjust using a new device and a new therapy that's brand new to them. And then an adjustment period for the system as it kind of learns the user itself too and learns the user's insulin delivery needs. So I think both parties are going through their own adjustment period, just acclimating to each other for those first few days. It's like getting a pet. Yeah. Like getting a new partner. Understanding, yeah. Sort yeah, of, of learning. It's it's learning the nuances of, they're each learning the nuances of each other. And I think, you know, yeah. it's an important point to make that it's starting off more conservatively because it is not going to dive right in if it doesn't know what it's dealing with. And so having, yeah. having the, I think, stressing the importance of follow-up for, for users with their providers to make sure that the carb ratio is where we want it to be, to make sure that the correction factor and the rest of the bolus calculator settings are, are where they need to be because it's going to evolve and work over time. I think that's such a, a, a critical part of the expectation setting. Yeah, follow-up is so critical, right? To review expectations, to kind of reinforce to the user that time and range may increase as that adaptive basal rate continues to update with each pod change, the HCPs can use that time to really evaluate behaviors of the user and make sure that bolus habits are reviewed, that the user is entering in all of their carbs for meals and snacks and bolusing. And unfortunately, these aren't set it and forget it systems quite yet, right? So I always say kind of think of it as a partner in your diabetes care. You're just kind of splitting the load or the splitting the burden of diabetes management that the user has to still bolus for carbs and snacks. And as long as they do that, then the system will help to ensure that that adaptive basal rate is really represented representative of their true daily insulin needs. And then in terms of the HCP follow-up, it's a good time then after that first visit to look at the basal bolus distribution, make sure that it's about 50-50 with basal insulin representing about 40 to 50% of total daily insulin needs. And then the remaining, you know, 50 to 60% coming from bolusing. And that's just kind of standard, standard guidance too, but it's good to take a look at that and just evaluate at that follow-up visit with the user and just address any questions or concerns as a patient transitions to a new device or new therapy, just as you would when you start a pump going from injections, right? Right. Rome wasn't built in a day. We can't expect people to be perfect 24 or 48 or 72 hours after wearing Perfect is the enemy of the good, right? It's not... 
that I grew up with that. That was a, <laughs> as a as a type A perfectionist. <laughs> that was our, the mantra in my house to try and not get me to be like that. But I really, I, awesome. I sort of use it because, you know, so many of our patients try and strive for this perfection and it's unattainable. I love what you said, Leslie, about having a partner. I think it's such a good visual of what this system can allow for our users. So let's talk a little bit about considerations of transitioning a patient from wherever they're coming from, whether it's injections and multiple daily injections, a traditional pump like Omnipod Dash or a different AID system. Fact or fake news, Leslie, the settings or ratios from pre Previous therapy need to be reassessed. Dun, da, da, da. I love this factor or fake news um, question. It's it's really fun and yeah, it's it's fact. They should be assessed before transitioning to a new therapy, just as you would assess settings before transitioning from MDI over to a pump, right? It's always helpful to take that time, assess initial settings before the user gets started and before they initiate the Omnipod 5 system and just making sure that the settings are practical. They're appropriate for the user's body weight, their physiology, their clinical needs. Just following that standard practice that we talked about earlier that, you know, basal needs make up about 40 to 50 percent of their TDI and bolusing makes up about 50 to 60 percent. And just considering that guidance when starting Omnipod 5, you know, if a user has been on a traditional pump for a long time and maybe their settings are outdated, it's good just to take a look and reevaluate that and, and make sure that they're starting off on the right foot. So I think that's helpful guidance. I think too that, and correct me if I'm wrong, ladies, but if a, if a user is coming from a standard pump or another AID system and they have a 70-30 basal bolus distribution, it might be helpful to really evaluate what's going on there, right? Like, are they actually missing boluses? Are they actually over-basalized? Are they going low overnight? And maybe they don't need that 70% basal. Maybe, I don't know, help me, Dina. What other situations can they go? I mean, <laughs> some people don't like to bolus, right? That's one I see probably more often than not. And so that's why maybe doing a 50-50 split. It, to me, I explain this to a lot, of, a lot of people and say, we're almost giving the algorithm permission to be a little bit more flexible, right? To really stretch its muscles. If someone's coming from 70% basal, 30% bolus, and we determine, well, they're missing a lot of boluses, that's probably why they're only getting 30% bolus, right? That if we do something closer to 50-50, maybe 60-40, that allows the system to be more vigorous, Adept. Yeah. And I think it's a good time too when you're doing that reevaluation as a healthcare provider and you're seeing that kind of split and the users maybe not bolusing in an adequate fashion to also use that time to have a conversation with the patient about their behavior in partnership with that piece of diabetes technology too. And then one thing to consider when transitioning from another automated insulin delivery device, and as we think of these advances in technology that are coming to market and more adoption or greater adoption of AID systems, what is programmed in as a setting is not always what is actually delivered. So it's really important to look at that data management report and see what's actually being delivered as opposed to what's just being programmed into the device. And and that can vary. That's why I think that evaluation is really helpful to take the time to, to you know, look at all those different aspects and help the patient get started on the right foot. Wise, wise words from Leslie. Wise, wise words. So what if the settings aren't optimized. You know, I worked in an endocrine practice for 10 years. I know how crazy it can be there. I know how sometimes things get, you know, lost in translate or, you know, people forget and they're checking off transfer pump settings and they're not, they don't have time to take a look. Totally. What happens if we don't do that full assessment? 
Yeah, Are we yeah. going to run into the flames? What's happening? <laughs> run into the flames. We will not <laughs> run into the flames, which is great. So because it is an adaptive algorithm, right? Smart Adjust technology continues to adapt based on the user's insulin delivery needs and what it's delivering through automated insulin delivery, as well as what the user is programming in, in terms of bolus delivery. The system will continue to adapt based on the user's insulin requirements. So if settings aren't optimized right at the very beginning when the user is getting started, Omnipod 5 will continue to adapt. It might just take a little bit longer, but it will continue to adapt. With the adaptivity that's happening and the total daily insulin and making sure that we're talking about our patients bolusing regularly for all of their carbs, can you explain why it's so important that they continue to correct and give correction boluses in the Omnipod 5 system. I want to dig into that a little bit because I think there's a bit of misconception out there about not needing to give correction boluses. I think this is an important component of everything that we've been saying with within the bolus calculator. Yeah, I think that's great, Dean. I'll, I'll play along with the game of fact or fake news here, and it is fact. The users should give corrections for hyperglycemia. And I do have a lot of respect for the confusion of correcting with an automated insulin delivery system. Like the system corrects, do I need to correct? I understand how there could be confusion around that topic. So I think with respect to that, it's good to kind of review the foundation of how Omnipod 5 responds to hyperglycemia so that we're all on the same page there. So what it does is it increases automated insulin delivery for the user through a series of microboluses every five minutes. And if the user's predicted glucose will be above their set target glucose in 60 minutes through a 60-minute prediction, Omnipod 5 will deliver larger microboluses beyond that user's adaptive basal rate every five minutes. And it does that to try to steer that user toward their customized target glucose setting. Users should correct as needed, and, and users would benefit from giving a correction bolus if they are experiencing prolonged episodes of hyperglycemia, we want them to correct in that case. And because the algorithm is a TDI-based algorithm, we know that boluses impact that user's TDI, right? It's their total daily insulin, bolus insulin, automated insulin delivery, all of that is going to impact their TDI, their total daily insulin, which then increases the user's adaptive basal rate. It basically tells the system, hey, I need more, right? And so those correction boluses can be helpful and it, it can help the user steer their glucose toward the target as well. So I, I think it all goes back to that partnership concept that we were talking about earlier. Like the user's a partner, the Omnipod 5 system is a partner and they're going to help each other out. And it's it's helpful to correct as needed. I would recommend delivering a correction for prolonged hyperglycemia. And all of this informs the user's TDI, which informs their adaptive basal rate. So it is helpful to correct as needed in that case. So I just wanted to review based on everything that you just said with those correction boluses, one of the really cool features of the way that the system works is you can actually go ahead and look in the history in auto events very specifically, and you can see what was the micro bolus given based on what the CGM was. So you still do get to kind of have some insight on what that 
delivery actually looked like. Yeah, totally. So within history, you can see every five-minute microbolus and CGM value users and HCPs actually too, if they were looking at the device, could see a CGM graph and it shows when the user's at their maximum automated insulin delivery, when it's pausing too. So all of those are, are features within the user interface of Omnipod 5. One thing to point out too while we're on the topic of correcting and, and hyperglycemia is that users could also correct, you know, at mealtimes with a really novel feature with Omnipod 5 that I think is worth just bringing up because it is novel and unique. And that is that it has what we term a smart bolus calculator. Yes. Love what that. makes it so smart, right? Well, what makes it smart is the user can tap use CGM and uniquely it's going to pull in not just their current CGM value, but it also imports their CGM trend into that bolus calculation. So it will increase that suggested bolus dose really by up to 30% if the user CGM trend is increasing, it'll decrease it if user CGM trend is decreasing. So it's a, a really unique and kind of novel feature with Omnipod 5. So they can use that when bolusing and, and delivering corrections too. Awesome, awesome. All right, let's talk about what impacts algorithm behavior because I get this question a lot. Can changing the manual basal rates impact automated insulin delivery? Fact or fake news? Oh, that one is definitely fake news, Nancy. Yes. Long gone are the days of like tinkering with basal rates for Omnipod systems or Omnipod 5 specifically, I should say. You don't have to tinker with basal rates for management of Omnipod 5. Remember, it's a TDI-based system, right? So when we think about adjustable settings, simplicity really was in the forefront of our minds for the design of Omnipod 5, and that includes adjustable settings. It's really one setting that is going to predominantly drive algorithm behavior or how aggressive that algorithm is going to be. And that's the target glucose setting. We should put that in echo, everybody. Yeah. Target glucose setting is the only thing that impacts automated insulin delivery. Yeah. So the, the target is the main driver of automated insulin delivery. And I always say you can kind of think of it as a spectrum of how aggressive you want the algorithm to be. So there's adjustable targets ranging from 110 to 150 milligrams per deciliter. And 110, of course, is going to be the most aggressive with 150 being the least aggressive. And they're in 10 milligram per deciliter increments. You could do a target of 110, 120, 130, 140, 150. And they're adjustable by time of day too. So you could have up to eight different segments throughout the day and kind of create a unique profile for each user. or Perhaps they're coming in with a higher baseline A1C and you want to run them at a target of 150 just in the beginning for more of a gradual lowering of glycemia. Then you could do that too, or a different target for daytime versus nighttime. So it's really the target glucose that's going to be the main driver of automated insulin delivery. And then the other settings for the smart bolus calculator, they're adjustable, but more of a traditional sense. And we can spend some time diving into that too, because I think that's a, a great topic as well. Do you know, another question that I get a lot is providers saying, well, I need to adjust something and the patient's already at 110. You know, what about max insulin delivery? Is that fact or fake news, Leslie? 
Yeah, no, so that that's definitely fake news. So Max Basil, even Max Bolus settings, I've heard of those being adjusted too in an attempt to kind of drive algorithm delivery. And no, that would be fake news. What I would say to that is think of Max Basil rates or the Max Bolus settings, similar to how you think of them for the Omnipod insulin management system or the Omnipod Dash system, they behave in the same way. So the Max Basil rate defines the upper limit for basal rates used within the basal program or temp basal during manual mode. And then the max bolus is just the upper limit of any bolus delivered either through the smart bolus calculator or through a manual bolus. So it's those are just kind of safety features that are implemented. And you can think of them as behaving the same way they would for Omnipod or Omnipod Dash. So they won't impact or drive algorithm behavior. To sum it up, Omnipod 5 uses TDI and smart adjust technology as opposed to the user entered basal rates after the first 48 hours and a pod change. The only thing that can impact automated insulin delivery is target glucose. Target glucose setting. That is right. And then, you know, every five minutes, it makes that dosing decision. And that's based on the user's adaptive basal rate, how much IOB they have, right? It's considering that and what their current glucose value is and kind of the trajectory of glucose values too. So all of that is considered within that dosing decision every five minutes. So you can see the basal rates were not said there. Those are not considered in that dosing decision every five minutes. It's that target glucose setting and those other factors. Ding, ding, ding. Perfect. Okay. Tell us about why we might need to modify basal rates, manual basal rates. That's a great point to bring up. And I think an example of this would be like pediatric users who are growing really quickly and their insulin needs are changing more rapidly. We want to make sure that for manual mode, the basal rates that would be used in those scenarios would be safe and effective if the user ever did have to switch to manual mode. Nancy, Dina, you guys probably see this working in the field as clinical services managers, like patients run out of supplies from time to time. It's just a fact of life, right? They run out of sensors and maybe they have to switch to manual mode in that case. We just want to make sure that those rates that are used in manual mode are safe and effective for the patient. So that's when a healthcare provider might want to look at basal rates and just make sure that they're they're appropriate if the patient did ever have to transition back to manual mode. Uh, weight loss in our adult patients, yeah. patients growing rapidly in our pediatric population, that's when we might need to adjust basal rate settings. So it is appropriate, especially if they are going into automated mode limited. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Dina, I have not given you a chance to talk. We, <laughs> Leslie and I have been Well, you know, you're, just... you're, you're deep in it. It's, I'm actually very, yeah. I, I love hearing about it. So it's, um, it's, the, same, it's the same for me. I, I can talk about it as much as I can listen to it. So I think it's an important distinction to discuss what can be changed and what's important to change. So we've just talked about the the manual basal program is important to look at because things are changing, particularly in our PEDS patients, possibly in our you know adult population, maybe with like what Nancy said with weight loss or what have you. But the thing that we do have control over is the bolus calculator. That's where we can make adjustments. Obviously, the target is the thing that's affecting the algorithm, but that doesn't mean you don't want to address the rest of the bolus calculator, right? And so that goes to what we were saying before about transfer settings, right? You want to be paying attention to that. Do you have any other specific tips within those bolus calculator settings? 
Yeah, I think really what makes understanding all of these system nuances is the fact that every automated insulin delivery system has different tunable parameters, right? So I have a lot of respect for practicing healthcare providers trying to wrap their heads around keeping all of this straight when every system behaves a little bit differently. And an easy way to kind of generalize our smart bolus calculator settings is they work in the same way in which Omnipod or Omnipod Dash would work. They're fully customizable, but they don't impact automated insulin delivery behavior. They don't drive the algorithm, so to speak. So the users or healthcare providers can adjust their insulin to carbohydrate ratio. They can adjust the correction factor, correct above value, reverse correction can be turned on or off, the duration of insulin action. All of these impact the bolus doses that are delivered for that user. And it's common for the bolus calculator settings to need adjustment. One of the more common adjustments would be be an adjustment to the user's insulin to carbohydrate ratio. We do see that taking place. And I think that's common with an automated insulin delivery system just due to the kind of dynamic nature of automated insulin delivery. What I mean by that more specifically is that a user may have less insulin on board going into a meal. So let's say overnight, right? For an example, the system is pausing insulin delivery automatically. So they might have less insulin on board going into breakfast. And so they might benefit from a strengthening of an insulin to carb ratio in that case for that mealtime to help mitigate that postprandial hyperglycemia in that case. So maybe a 10 to 25% increase of the insulin to carb ratio might help to optimize that postprandial glycemia. And in automated mode, Smart Adjust technology doesn't use the program duration of insulin action setting to calculate automated insulin delivery, correct? It does not use the program DIA for algorithm behavior. So the duration of insulin action that is entered at the first time setup when the user is entering in their settings with their certified pod trainer, that just impacts the DIA or how long it's saying that insulin is active in the body for that bolus dose. So it's it's not determined. For that bolus. Hold on. Yeah. For that bolus, right? Because I've been getting yeah. a lot of questions lately from a lot of my providers saying, well, we know with this AID system, DIA is recommended to be this. What say you guys about the Omnipod 5? And I said, it's bolus insulin. That's it. That, yeah. that setting is just for bolus insulin. So do whatever you feel is appropriate for your patient, correct? You got it. You got it. No, that's that's totally right. The duration of insulin action setting is used in the same way as prior Omnipod models, right? So the Omnipod insulin management system or Omnipod dash, it just informs how long that bolus is actively working in the body. But the algorithm duration of insulin action is variable. So I think going back to your original question, Nancy, is like what would be a recommended duration of insulin action that yeah. healthcare providers could use? And it's what they would program for standard pump therapy, right? So, you know, three to four hours could be recommended. I have had a lot of providers say to me when they're looking at the Omnipod 5 reports, hey, if I'm seeing orange lines indicating max reached or I'm seeing red lines indicating, you know, it's been paused in other AID systems, that means I need to correct something. I need to change a setting. Fact or fake news, if they see paused insulin, does that indicate, hey, you need to adjust something? No, no, not necessarily. I mean, if they're seeing paused,
caused insulin and the user is running low and they're having a lot of hypoglycemia and the algorithm is pausing insulin in an attempt to mitigate that, then we could look at adjusting that target glucose setting, right? Because it is customizable. If they were at a 110 and they're experiencing nocturnal hypoglycemia, then we know that we could bump up that target glucose. And that's really nice is that this target can be individualized based on the patient's need and it can be customizable based on time of day for whether they are experiencing nocturnal hypoglycemia or what that case may be. But you know, just standard pauses in insulin delivery is the beautiful nature of an automated insulin delivery system. So if it's not associated with you know nocturnal hypoglycemia in this example, then no, they, they don't need to change the setting just because they're seeing that. I think that's a, a great point to, to mention. So Nancy, this episode really highlighted aspects of the Omnipod 5 system that are important for management and setting expectations. Head over to part two, everybody, where we discuss everyday use and go over some real life scenarios that might affect the success of a user wearing the Omnipod 5 system. 